you build one unit that works and one is the first step to millions. So let's like focus on getting one done. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up? Welcome to episode 60. Today, we're going to be talking about how to leverage data to improve and reimagine the product design process. We're going to be chatting with Anna Katrina Shedletsky. She is the CEO of Instrumental. I'm going to get you introduced to her and her company here in just a second. But first, I want to give you a quick preview of a few things you can expect from today's episode. First and foremost, we're going to talk about product design. We're also going to talk about mass production and how Anna and her team are solving one of the biggest money sinks, one of the biggest money sucks within the manufacturing world. Second, we're going to get to know Anna. We're going to get to know her story. We're going to talk about how she got her career started at Apple and how that eventually led to Instrumental. Then finally, we're going to talk about a couple other areas. Anna is very much involved in her Women in STEM mentorship program, which she founded, as well as some other exciting news for Instrumental that we're going to cover throughout today's episode. So if we get into any resources you want to learn about, you can go to manufacturinghappyhour.com 60 to access the show notes from today's episode. Also, if you are enjoying this podcast, please feel free to leave us a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. We'd greatly appreciate it. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. Reviews can be as short as just a couple sentences. It's easy to hit that five-star button as well. And if you leave a review, I'm happy to give you a shout-out if you leave your name in the review in a future episode. Again, that's manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. And with that, we're going to get a sweet start rolling to today's episode. So without further ado, let's dive in. Right. Our guest today is the CEO and co-founder of Instrumental Inc., where she and her team are making it easier to solve problems in manufacturing by closing and accelerating feedback loops in product development and production. Before that, she came up through the ranks as a product design engineer and leader at Apple and is also the founder, fundraiser, and industry engine for the Women in STEM Mentorship Program. Let's welcome Anna Katrina Shedletsky to the show. It's great to have you here, Anna. Great to be here, Chris. Excited that we're having this conversation. Also excited that we got to chat before today because my opening line, my opening question is usually, you know, if we were having this conversation over a beverage, where would that be? But you were very quick to be like my happy hour preference is <laughs> ice cream. So if we were hanging out where you're from in Northern California and Silicon Valley, where would we be grabbing some ice cream today? Paint that picture for us. There is a place in downtown Palo Alto called Gelatayo. Uh, which has amazing gelato, uh, really good flavors, all small batch, um, and their mint chocolate chip, even though super basic, I know, is really, really amazing. And they'll put like a little cookie that they'll drizzle the uh, 
the either dark or milk chocolate on. So you get this kind of chocolate coating over your gelato and it's absolutely fabulous. You sit outside on the little, you know, kind of alfresco style, European style, sit outside and have your gelato. So that's where we would be. Excellent. Well, I am already craving gelato based on that wonderful, (laughs) colorful description you gave. I am a mint chocolate chip fan as well. So, (laughs) all right. So let's say we've got some, some mint chocolate chip ice cream and we're having a conversation and someone asks you this question, like I'm interested how you'd answer it over a, a casual discussion over ice cream. So I understand that manufacturing's biggest problem is that 20 to 35 cents of every dollar spent in manufacturing is wasted. Where does that money go? Oh, it goes a lot of places and none of them are good. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's things like scrap. Um, so that's, uh, stuff that you can't salvage from the line, uh, rework costs and just like the, the energy and time involved in taking something that was assembled wrong and then on disassembling it and reassembling it. And usually you consume materials and create scrap during that process, mistakes, experiments. So mistakes would be things like, you know, I, as the engineer, like, didn't catch the interference in the CAD and now my parts don't like fit together. And that causes like a whole expensive problem. Um, not only to fix, but all the parts that were made and then the units you can't make because your parts interfere um, experiments. So those of those of you and your listeners who might be um, in the high volume kind of side of electronics does a lot of DOEs design of experiments. Um, and so a lot of different configurations are trying out different things. That's really expensive. Those add up, particularly at Apple. We do like, you know, configurations of a hundred units. Each one of those is going to be tens of thousands of dollars uh, to to run an experiment. Um, Lots of things like that returns. Um, The whole process involved in making this stuff itself um, creates a lot of, I would say, unnecessary economic waste. Of course, there's all sorts of other waste that is kind of you're damn, you, you end up with it regardless. Um, but we could significantly reduce all of this kind of economic waste, which includes like time, money, energy, materials, um, all of those things. And so um, Bain and company says it could be as large as 40%. It's mm. different in different industry, like different sub verticals of manufacturing, for sure. Car manufacturing, semi-manufacturing, high volume electronics, they're very different. Um, but in general, there's kind of an industry acceptance that it's somewhere between 20 and 40% of every dollar spent. So wow. there's a lot of dollars spent. That's a big number. It's trillions of dollars a year. Um, and uh, we got to get rid of that if we want to uh, if we want to be more efficient, if we want to make our world a, a world we all want to live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like a, a noble and worthy goal, which is why I started the company to kind of work on that waste, chip away uh, at that at that unnecessary waste. I love it. Yeah, I, there was uh, an individual where I went to at Marquette that described engineering as a noble profession. So I like that you use the word noble in there. Also, I mean, no shortage of things that you just mentioned, waste, human error, experiments. I mean, the list goes on from that answer. And and let's say we got a double scoop of ice cream because I've got a follow up question to this <laughs> that uh, that I think is appropriate. You know, based on this trillion dollar problem that you just described what does instrumental do and we'll get into more detail but what's your let's say elevator pitch your ice cream version of this answer (laughs) yeah the uh the explain like i'm five ice cream version of Mm -hmm. instrumental is that really we are building a way and we have a way to essentially collect product data 
from the manufacturing process. So what is product data? Well, first, what is a product? A product is an individual item that's being manufactured, a phone, a laptop, uh, a widget of some kind. That's a product. Product data is all of the data that's associated with that serial number during the manufacturing process. That could be something like a measurement, um, like it was this big. That is a, that's something associated with the product, the unit itself. Um, it could be the speaker or microphone or uh, uh, wireless antenna performance. All of that would be associated with the serial number. And so what instrumental does is makes it really easy to aggregate that data together uh, so that engineers can use that to close loops in their process, figure out what's going wrong, solve those problems, make the corrective actions needed to eliminate those problems. And because the data is easily kind of put together and it's it's accessible from anywhere in the world, particularly important uh, during these times in COVID, you can't go mm -hmm. to the factory line anymore. Um, and uh, it enables them to go much faster. So instead of having a yield item that is hitting your yield for weeks or even months, um, you might be able to stop that item within days of essentially having um, the issue. Uh, we've, we've built AI on top that helps to find those issues or helps to kind of point engineers at where to look, like what's most important in the data. But really all we're doing is we're, we're aggregating together um, product data from across the supply chain. I love that. And I want to get into instrumental in a bit more detail as we get further into this, but I think we have to start with Apple a little bit because I've got to, I've got to think that some of your realization of the problem at hand came from being a product designer, then ultimately a, a leader at Apple as well. Before I ask about that though, I mean, you worked on the Apple watch team. I'm sure our audience of, of manufacturing leaders out here are curious, what, tell me what it was like just being part of that team at Apple. Yeah. So, um, Apple Watch, it was an amazing program to get to be a part of. Um, and so I had led a handful of iPod programs before that and on the product design team. So I was on the product design engineering team um, and I'd led a couple of iPods and then we'd shipped. We had an issue. We had like a late breaking issue with an iPod that we were shipping. And then um, I got tapped to like, hey, do you want to like finish that up and then come work on this cool new thing? Um, it was pretty interesting because it was the first time um, we were building eight products at once. Uh, so generally Apple builds like at that time, it was like black and white. That was like the, we'll build the white version and the black version. And so at most there were like two versions of the product and the black versus the white has very minor differences, um, having to do with the fact that like white, uh, illuminates a lot more and is more brittle because of the titanium dioxide, but really it's the same geometries. It's just like a skew difference. This is different because um, for your for your listeners, we'll note that aluminum, steel, and two different kinds of gold have different mechanical properties and strength mm -hmm. to weight ratios. And so just because uh, you have a device that looks the same on the outside does not mean that it's on, the same on the inside. We were also building the small and the large version at the same time. Um, and so eight different SKUs, uh, eight different geometries. And um, they're everything in that product, except for maybe the touch screen um, was something that was risky, had something risky and new about it. So like we'd never done a crown like mm -hmm. that, like that kind of input output or input device we'd never done. Um, force touch was new. Um, we'd never done anything waterproof. Uh, we've never done anything that had like a, like a, Band, interchangeable band attached on like a B-spline surface, et cetera, et cetera. So there's just so much new about that. 
Um, and everything was risky. Like even something as simple as a button, it was the first waterproof button that Mm. Apple built. And so, you know, you might think like, oh, the button will give that to the new guy. (laughs) That was like a really hard part. Um, and so it was all really hard and high risk and we had to invent all sorts of new ways to actually, um, you know, solve these problems. It was fascinating. There's about 20 product designers on the team and probably, I don't know, at least 400 people supporting the hardware side of the first generation Apple watch. And I don't know how many people on software were as well, but um, really, really cool project to get the opportunity to lead um, and really proud of, of what we accomplished in that first generation product. And then of course the, the team that's there today has, has built many iterations and versions since then. And the product has just gotten better. I always wonder what people like imagine Apple is like, because I, one thing I think people understand is that, you can fit most of Apple's products on one table. It's not like manufacturers that have thousands and thousands of SKUs. But like you just said, you're talking eight different SKUs that you were working with, subtleties like materials that you were discussing, that there's so much complexity to what looks from the outside, like, you know, in many ways, a simple product because it's so simple to use in a lot of ways. That's our our visualization of the experience when it comes to Apple. So my follow-up question to this then is, how did Apple prepare you to build your own company? Ooh, interesting. I did not expect that question. <laughs> I do I do throw maybe some <laughs> curveballs in there, but also, you know, maybe some of the problems that you realized were part of the design process yeah, that influenced sure. your instrumental. Sure. I would say I'm actually, I'm going to answer your first question, which is actually a little bit bigger than the second question, but I'll, I'll answer both. So the first question is, is what I learned there. Um, I'm going to go back even further back about what like prepared me most, I think for starting a company was Mm. science fair in high school. Oh, um, so because I think this might be interesting to folks. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so I, I competed in competitive science fair, like uh, independent science research project uh, in high school. And what do you do with science research? You have a crazy problem that no one solved before. You have to figure it out. And then you have to put together a story and defend your work over and over and over and over again to, you know, in a poster, on a keynote, whatever, you're constantly defending your work. And I think that that is very much what being an entrepreneur is, which is telling stories, putting together those stories in ways that like people can follow, explain things, being the expert, but getting people on board um, and selling that over and over and over again. So I would say that I think that was the most formative experience in preparing to uh, to run a company. <laughs> in terms of in terms of like Apple explicitly, so one of the reasons I sought out Apple and was really excited about that being a place I got to grow up as an engineer is I was really interested in perfection. I was like an intellectual concept as an engineer. Um, I had was very naive coming out of college and thought that like Apple from the outside looked like you know, they must have perfect yields because they build a million phones a day. And like, mm-hmm. if they, if even 1% of those is bad, that would be so many phones. And so they must like have perfect yields. That was kind of mm-hmm. like my very naive assumption. 
which of course, anybody who knows anything about manufacturing know this is not possible. And of course, Apple doesn't have perfect yields and they might not even have like industry standard yields. I don't, I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, I show up on day two and realize like, oh, actually like the yields are pretty bad. But that was kind of an interesting thing for me was just understanding that like perfection is really difficult um, and how hard it is to actually build something. Uh, millions of things, tens of thousands of things is still hard. Um, and I even had like a saying for my team to try to, you know, try to like rally them up when like everything was broken and like, we couldn't figure it out and be like, you know what you build one unit that works and one is the first step to millions. So let's like focus on getting one done. Um, and I also think that's kind of also a similar thing for, for being an entrepreneur and, and starting a company. Obviously I was inspired by understanding the problem space. I learned a lot about the problem space. I learned about how to build millions of things. I learned about some ideal processes and best practices for doing that. And also why it was really hard to do that. Like why, um, why companies struggle with that. And I'm not claiming that Apple doesn't struggle with that. I think, I think the whole industry does, and we don't have great tools. And so there is a, an understanding that, you know, perhaps some, some tools could be built that could really solve this problem. Um, you know, and at the time when we started the company, there were no tools in existence. It wasn't like, a, mm-hmm. oh, Apple had a thing. We're going to build that for everyone. Nobody had any things. And we needed to figure out what we could build that would um, ultimately solve this problem. And I think the key is really in data. And so yeah. we became a data monster. And that's what Instrumental really is, is a data company. Um, and we're helping our customers kind of aggregate and squeeze juice out of that like data that they normally would kind of get like lost and siloed in the process. And so they weren't getting very much value out at all. So I would say those are some of the things that I've learned along the way that were useful mm-hmm. um, for, for starting a company and the company itself. And, you know, it, same thing in being an entrepreneur that like one is the first step to many. And so like you get one customer and you figure out how to yeah. turn one into more than one, you get one, you know, big deal, your first big deal, and you figure out how to take that and turn it into more. And I think um, being able to recognize even just the achievement of the one Mm-hmm. Um, as a proof point for the many, uh, is something that, uh, that, you know, I find, I find very helpful in, in this entrepreneurial journey as well. Excellent story. I like how you took us back to the science fair days. And I have a question that I didn't expect to ask, but jumped into my mind. So in the moment, who is it more intimidating to defend your story to science fair judges or VCs? I have to, that, I just feel like I have to ask that question. I don't know that I was ever intimidated by any of them. <laughs> nice. I love it. I love I that think, confidence. I think that's just like a, you know, I think, what do they say? Like 10,000 hours. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as a, in the formative, uh, the formative time of my teens, I got used to defending my work probably for 10,000 hours in front of PhDs mm-hmm. who definitely knew more than me. Sure. Um, and I think that that is an amazing like confidence builder. And I've just like always loved talking about instrumental or whatever I'm working on and why it's cool and telling those stories has just always been like a fun thing. Yeah. Um, and I know that that's like a, that's unique and not everybody feels that way, but 
That's fine. That can be my superpowers. <laughs> I dig it. No, I, I always tell people this show is a mix of how it's made and TEDx, and you're giving us some good uh, confidence and leadership lessons along the way. <laughs> but I am going to skew to the technical side again, because I want to dive a bit more into to instrumental, because when I was first learning about it, I was told that, hey, it, it looks like you might be a visual inspection company, but that was just like the first area you started, right? Like instrumental is a platform. So I know we did the ice cream version, but tell us a bit more about how instrumental works like from the perspective of like a product designer that's using it yeah yeah so i think people um it is true that we as a company we kind of started with an application that looked a lot like inspection i mean you can see mm -hmm. right behind me here like, yeah this looks like inspection mm -hmm. um and so you see that and um one of the things we've learned about human psychology is like you see something and your brain immediately tries to put it in a category of something you've seen before. And so it's very reasonable that you'd see this and be like, oh, okay, that's like some kind of inspection equipment. They must be an inspection company. Um, we're a data company. Uh, the reason we started with inspection is because this is an incredible high resolution data set. And I don't mean that, no pun intended on the, 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 the image piece, but you know, it's an incredible data set. A picture is worth a thousand words. And when you're actually, you know, a product design engineer and you're trying to figure out what happened, a lot of the times what you do in the real world is you rip things apart to get a look at them, figure out, well, why did this one break? What broke? Where did it break? Was it, was it a, a workmanship problem? Was my design bad? Was there a part quality issue? Um, understanding the root cause of a problem is, is, like essentially something that's primarily done in a, in a teardown process. For product design engineers, it's usually visual. Um, for electrical engineers, you can be probing all sorts of points on your board and stuff like that, trying to figure things out. So different, different disciplines may be using different tools, but it was an incredible data set. And it was a data set that we often found our customers didn't really leverage. Um, and so it was something unique that we could offer. Not that visual inspection online is unique. I'm not saying that, but generally visual inspection on manufacturing lines has been like one camera, one image, one camera, one issue. And so usually the cameras are really zoomed in and it's just like measuring one gap, but mm -hmm. instrumentals kind of concept was, well, let's just zoom out and like see the whole thing and take images in context. And so we started we started essentially capturing images of key states of assembly in the line um, and building AI tools that could take that data and tell you like what was interesting in the data. So you can't look at millions of photos every day, but mm -hmm. an AI can, and it yeah. can tell you like, these ones are interesting and those ones are interesting. And you as an engineer, you might be like, oh yeah, that's cool. Like I, I didn't know we had, you know, like it looks like some of our connectors are this way and they're supposed to be this other way. Or some of them you look at there and like, oh, that's expected. That's not a defect. And so you can quickly parse through kind of these discoveries. And that was really the first application of instrumental, but it was built on a platform. And so I think mm -hmm. that's what people kind of forget about us or don't know about us is that that makes it very easy for us to do much more than just images. So we have like a yeah. core application of images, but we pull in test station data too. Mm -hmm. We're pulling in measurement data. We're pulling in images from equipment that's not ours, like x-ray um, or Keyens, Cognex, the, the, there's a billion dollars of industrial cameras that are sold every year. All of that stuff can come into this platform. As long as it's associated with a serial number, then you can use it. And the reason serialization is important is because we're creating this digital thread of all yeah. the places um, where this unit has been, this one unit has been, and that enables 
you, if there's a problem downstream to go back and look at all the breadcrumbs back to where your root cause is. And that's mm-hmm. really what engineers do is they do root cause analysis. And then once they yeah. figure out the root cause, they make a change and those changes improve things, core metrics on the line, like yield or um, yield being a big one, rework rate, all of that stuff, um, get the product ready for production. So we work with customers. Generally, we land in development during the new product introduction phase mm-hmm. um, when, as long as they're building at least like tens of units um, mm-hmm. is a good time to get started. And we work with them in these low unit count volumes through multiple builds of iteration. And then when they get to production, uh, we expand across the replicated lines if that's relevant for the, for the customer and we'll help them monitor and do continuous improvement activities in production. So on both sides of the development process, we're able to provide some value. Awesome stuff. I have a couple questions that stem from that. Actually, first a comment. I love that you, um, also for anyone listening to the audio podcast on video, there is inspection equipment behind uh, Anna right now for for context. But I like that you bring it up that, hey, a picture's worth a thousand words. You were looking at an area that was, let's say a low hanging fruit starting point. I think for anyone out there in the manufacturing world, whether they're in production, whether they're in sales, whatever the field, you got to start with the areas that you know, make a lot of sense or where you can get some immediate successes. We'll be right back right after a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Concept Systems, who you can find at conceptsystemsinc.com. Concept Systems is an independent systems integrator and your automation solution partner for anything from antiquated control system retrofits to greenfield controls coordination and project management. Whether it's process or discrete control, Concept Systems has been doing this for over 20 years. They've partnered with best-in-class companies like Rockwell Automation and Fanuc to conceptualize, design, and build automation systems that include everything like robotics, vision systems, and manufacturing intelligence solutions. Personally, I've been familiar with Concept Systems for a couple years now, and I have to say I'm a huge fan of the amazing team they have over there. With national presence across the U.S., they have application experience in more than just a few industries, including food and beverage, aerospace, automotive, building products, and metals, just to name a few. If you have a project coming up requiring an automation solution partner or even a main automation contractor, head over to conceptsystemsinc.com and get in touch. They take an extremely methodical risk mitigating approach to project management that allows you to hit your project timelines and keep focusing on your core business. Oh, and if you want to hear a bit more about Concept Systems, make sure to check out Episode 7 of Manufacturing Happy Hour, which is our panel discussion on smart manufacturing, featuring Concept Systems' very own Director of Sales and Marketing, Ryan Wasmond. And now, back to today's episode. I did have a question around the AI side of things. You mentioned that AI can look at millions of photos a day because I wanted to understand how artificial intelligence played into this. So you talk about being able to like look through the photos, figure out which ones are more interesting than others. Are there other applications for that in this process? Yeah, so we've built up some core proprietary algorithms, um, frankly, the best in the world at being able to identify it's it, for those who are AI folks, machine learning folks, mm-hmm. and know some of the lingo, we're actually doing unsupervised um, discovery of 
of anomalies in the data. So what that means is you don't have to tell us what you're looking for or even where to look. And that might sound like magic and it kind of is, but it does work. And the reason it can work is because we've cheated. Um, we have a very narrow scope of how, of how instrumental is used and that it's used for discrete manufacturing, looking at units that look mostly the same um, mm -hmm. from unit to unit. And so the use cases for discrete manufacturing are, are, are wide, but discrete manufacturing itself is like a narrow niche for the application of, mm -hmm. of machine learning. And so we can look at motorcycles, laptops, phones, watches. We're looking at wafer parts actually. So like even stuff that's even smaller than, than you know, macroelectronics, microelectronics, even down mm -hmm. to nano size electronics. So we're kind of that whole gamut doesn't matter. That's not where we're cheating. We're cheating on the fact that we're looking at the same thing essentially over and over and over again. And so that's enabled uh, this unsupervised learning to work really well at finding these discoveries. Um, and then we have these kind of targeted spear phishing uses of it where an engineer can come in and see, oh, okay, this unit has like some damage in this area. I wonder if that's just one unit with damage or a systemic issue? That's like usually the first question an engineer will want to know is how many are impacted? Because that helps you prioritize. It helps you understand like, is this ongoing or, you know, maybe this is a onesie twosie and I'll throw that one out and not worry about it. Um, and so you can use the AI to actually find things that look similar to ones you already know. So you can, you can then find like, oh, there's 10 that all have scratches in this area and know definitively that like in your population, that's how many you have. Um, and then and we are also doing things where we're actually combining different data types. So um, functional test data, like an antenna test, you're building phones, mm -hmm. like the antenna's got to work. That's the main function of the phone. And so um, being able to create correlations essentially, or find correlations between um, functional test failure. So let's say you have a population, they're failing antennas. This is actually a customer kind of use case that actually happened. They had a group of units that were failing their antenna test. Uh, mm -hmm. And so they selected that test set, that data, and then Instrumental went and compared the test station data from that population and looked at the images to see, is there something different about these images relative to the entire population that was not selected mm -hmm. and actually ranked what it based on correlating correlations to that population. And so what it found is actually that units that performed well, the little micro coax, which is the antenna connector came out at like 12 o'clock and mm -hmm. the ones that didn't perform well came out at 10 o'clock. And the angle that the connector comes out of the connection, cause it is a 360, it could come out at any angle is not part of the spec. Like that's yeah. not part of the spec. So if you had done failure analysis and looked at the units, you might've seen that it came out at that angle, but not actually made a connection that all the ones that fail come out at 10 o'clock and none of the ones that pass come out at 10 o'clock, which is an mm. important, like that's an important line to draw. And so they're able to actually just change their procedure to be like, okay, well, they all got to come out at 12 o'clock because that's what we yeah. need to pass. Um, and that wouldn't have been something you could find, like even if you had done manual inspection. I mean, maybe, but like unlikely because it wasn't an obvious defect. It was within the scope of what was possible um, in the design. So that's kind of some examples of how AI can help. Um, and we're constantly building on additional functionality. And one of the things that is coming up soon will be data to data correlation. So I have functional failures here. Where were there near failures upstream or retests upstream um, that could help you actually adjust your limits and improve um, how much you're overkilling or um, upstream or improve how much you can ship to improve yields? I love that you bring up 
I think a very easy to visualize example where Nintendo comes out, you know, at 10 o'clock versus 12 o'clock. I like that you went into the example because that's what I was going to ask next. And and whether you talk to this or, you know, maybe maybe another example, no need to name customer names if you can't or anything. But I'd love to tie this back to kind of the results and the things that we talked about at the start. How has this helped someone measurably improve the way they're doing product design? Yeah. So there's two different cases to think about like categories. Well, mm-hmm. well, technically there's four different categories. To think about. <laughs> there's two main phases of any product. There's development and there's production. And generally you're getting different value out of each of those phases. So we can talk about that. And then what we've also discovered is there's kind of two core segments where we've found a lot of resonance already. One is high volume electronics. So that's your, your phones, your laptops, things that built things that get built in the hundreds of thousands a year, generally costing, I don't know, $150 or more, that kind of scope of thing. And then the second segment would be mission critical electronics. And so that would be much lower volume could be hundreds, um, generally higher expense, um, and generally because they're mission critical, like quality really matters. Like every unit must work. It's like not okay to receive a unit, and have it be DOA. Um, if you're, if you're a, a person who jumps out of airplanes for a living, um, you want your radio to work. Like mm-hmm. it's not okay that it does not yeah. work. Yep. Um, so, so those are kind of the, the, the four segments, um, that, or that there's two segments and then there's those two phases. And so what we've discovered is that there's essentially two use cases. There's the discovery and failure analysis piece, uh, which is relevant for uh, mostly for development, but also into production for the mission critical electronics. And then there's monitoring continuous improvement, which is for the production use case. And so in development, if what you want to do is discovery and failure analysis, it's all about time. The measurable result is when you come to your end date for the program, how mature is your product? What are the yields that you're able to start ramp on day one with? And we have uh, customers who've done enough programs in Instrumental, one of them over 10 programs, who told us that they were able to see um, that their products essentially ramped to stability weeks faster if they use Instrumental in development. Because what that meant is they were solving the problems that they normally find in production in development as part of their normal process. And so they were able to start with a more mature product. This is saving them hundreds of thousands of dollars each program because they're starting at just a higher yield rate. Um, In production scenarios, it's about monitoring and continuous improvement. You'd be surprised how little data or how disconnected um, teams that are responsible for improving line processes often are from the line itself. I mean, there's certainly folks in the factory who are responsible for this, but usually there's folks who are far away, thousands of miles away, who are relying on pretty janky reports from like an MES system to try to even mm-hmm. understand where their problems are. And so um, the continuous improvement aspect of instrumental is all about being able to prioritize where your biggest problems are. Even just knowing what your biggest problems are is like a novel thing. For some of our customers, some are a little further advanced and that's not their problem. Mm-hmm. But the main issue there is around spear fishing these problems, like each each nail in the Pareto, hammering mm-hmm. that down, mm-hmm. figuring out what the effort trade-off is going to be to hit this particular 
uh, bar in the Pareto versus the next one. Um, and so essentially using instrumental enables them to figure out where their biggest problems are and then actually track that the changes they're making in reality are causing those bars to go down, the trends to go down, that there, there's for less and less fallout over time mm-hmm. in those areas. And they're able to leverage the same failure analysis tools um, that their development counterparts use to actually figure out what changes we're going to make as part of that process of putting in, rolling in new changes. So for them, it's actually about rework elimination and yield improvement. We have customers that tell us it's like tripling the size of your engineering team um, Mm. to just have access to the data means you're spending a lot less time um, we've, we've measured from surveys 60% of the time engineers spend is on like communication and travel and like non-engineering tasks, non-creative tasks mm-hmm. or, um, that require their expertise. And so the idea here is to, to significantly reduce that 60% time down, um, so that you can spend more of your time actually solving problems, which is what engineers like to do anyway. Um, yeah. and maybe innovating, maybe you'll have some time if you don't have fire drills everywhere to actually innovate and the product and invent something new. Um, And so that's like another kind of core benefit our customers see is they just need a lot fewer um, team members to either do the same job or if they have all those team members, they can do many more jobs um, with with that team. And it's really hard to hire right now, um, as people know. And so being able to get more out of your existing experienced team and having their spend more time on the stuff that uses their expertise is a win for everyone. Excellent overview of instrumental and, and really putting it into context. I mean, tr- be like it's like tripling the size of your engineering team. That was one comment that stuck out. And maybe it's just because we're talking about Apple today as well. But I always think of the line, you know, if it's perfect when it comes out, you waited too long to release. I, I feel like I've heard that in the, con- you know, because Apple does their system releases as they go along. They're always improving it. But I, I really feel like you're providing a solution to make it a little bit more perfect before it comes out. You're Like you said, you're solving problems before they get discovered in production, which is yeah. one of the things that that resonates the most with me. And and we're getting towards the end of our, uh, you know, mint chocolate chip gelato cones here. So, I've, but there are a couple of questions I have to ask you before before we wrap up. And And one of those is, you know, you are the founder of the Women in STEM Mentorship Program. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and and what that does. Yeah, so this program is over seven years old um, and it runs during the academic calendar year. And the whole idea actually originated from an epiphany I had as like a young engineer at Apple. It had nothing to do with Apple, but it was just like an epiphany that I realized that, you know, there weren't a lot of like women who were, in my, in my meetings. Um, and that's not a problem unique to Apple. That's everyone, um, particularly in STEM fields. And I wondered why that was. And I started to kind of dig into it a little bit more. Um, and I realized that, you know, it was, it seemed to be that we were getting qualified women applicants. Maybe they weren't doing as well on the interview process. Um, and so I kind of dug into that and I was like, oh, well, why don't we do like a pilot program where we do like some basic like resume review and interview training. And it kind of was the first seed to what became the Women in STEM Mentorship Program, which is specifically targeted for women who are studying STEM fields in, um, in, at the university level. And it's to help with the transition from university STEM essentially into industry, if that's what women choose to do. Um, We also 
uh, have kind of added on folks who want to go into academia as well in those STEM fields because there's there's mentors available for them too. And so what we do is we actually kind of match them up with women practicing in either industry or academia, generally in very similar fields. And the whole idea is about expanding horizons about what's possible with mm-hmm. my degree. Um, as a mechanical engineer, I'm like literally sitting across from Stanford campus, which is that's where our office is. And like, that's where I went to school. And you'd go to the, you'd go to the job fair and there'd be like four different companies only that would ever be hiring mechanical engineers. And so I had this very narrow scope of what you could do with a mechanical engineering degree. And of course you can do a lot with a mechanical engineering degree. I just didn't know that. And mm-hmm. so building a community of, of essentially those connections, those like LinkedIn connections that if you're 15 years into your career, like I am, you kind of take for granted that you ha- are connected to thousands of people. Well, students on campus don't know anybody. They know their professors and each other. Um, and so we make, we help foster those connections, mentoring relationships that enable students to prep their resumes, do some interview practice, uh, feel a little bit more confident, and then also build a real connection with someone who would help them figure out like, here's what you should be looking for in like a, in a job interview to make sure you don't end up in a like super toxic culture or to make sure that you're going to have like the, the type of role that you're really interested in, or here's how to get connected with people you don't know. Here's how I would approach it um, and leverage the networks of these women. So we've been running the program. There's been hundreds of of women um, students who've gone through the program. Many have returned as mentors themselves. If you're interested in finding out more, either because you have a student in your life or you are a student um, who's studying STEM field at the university level, um, or if you are a practicing in industry or uh, in academia, um, please do go to WISM, as in Mary T, uh, .org and sign up on our mailing list. We are about to release applications for the next academic year. It is a remote mentorship program. It's pretty easy, low lift, and you have a huge impact uh, on the careers of of the next generation of women. So, um, you know, you might feel, I remember myself feeling like I was only two or three years out of school and I was like, what do I know? How could I solve this problem? I don't know anything. I'm so small. Um, you don't have to have arrived to be able to be helpful. You still, you still have things that people three years behind you don't have, like reach your mm-hmm. hand down and pull them up anyway, even though you don't feel like you are super successful or famous or know everything, you still know more, you know, three years more. Um, and that's really valuable. So it really encourage people to, um, to take a look. And if you are an ally, if you're not, uh, yourself identifying, um, as a, as a woman, then please do sign up. There's other ways to get involved and be supportive. Um, and we also put on a summit event where we bring people together to, to hear about, um, to hear some awesome women talk about their careers um, and some of the, the challenges that they've solved. I can tell you're an engineer because you, all, you seem to go back to the root cause with all these things. You, you talk about how you were looking at the applications and you know, you're seeing those gaps there and then you go back and you solve that problem. And, and for everyone that's listening to this, there will be links to um, the Women in STEM Mentorship Program in the show notes. So you can find all those at manufacturinghappyhour.com. Yes, it's a, it's a nonprofit. We don't make any, actually, like I buy the pizza. Like it's not even like I love that. it. <laughs> so if you want to get involved, we'd love to have you. <laughs> well, one one more thing before we wrap up. There is some success at, at Instrumental that I have heard you've had recently as well in particular to a, uh, an Inc. 5000 announcement. So I'd love to hear you share a little bit about that before we wrap the interview. 
Yeah, sure. We're really excited to have been honored on the, the Inc. 5000 list. Um, if we're rapidly growing companies, we are growing. Uh, the demand for manufacturing technologies in general has skyrocketed during COVID. Um, it's been a gift and a curse. There's been headwinds and tailwinds. The supply chain challenges are real, um, but there's been a lot of demand for let's do things better. Um, and I think people are realizing that there is not a going back in manufacturing. Um, there will not be a going back. It is a moving forward um, because it's, it's going to last long enough that several cycles are going to have happened. Nobody's going to go back. Everybody's thinking about how are we going to do manufacturing moving forward, what technologies we need. So our demand um, for the product has significantly increased 5x year over year in terms of demand. Um, and it's just been a, it's been really interesting to be kind of in the industry at this time where there's so much that's changing. Um, and we're, we're just really excited about the opportunity our customers have given us to, to grow with them. Mm-hmm. as they as they figure out these challenges and we can we can help them however we can um, but that's been really really um, cloud-based moving to the cloud pulling in AI technologies there's a lot out there it's there's a lot of marketing speak it's really hard to slice and dice to the heart of the matter um, but it's been an exciting time well congratulations on the latest success and I'm sure plenty more successes to come as instrumental continues to grow. I want to thank you for taking the time to jump on the show today, Anna, and uh, looking forward to future conversations. Absolutely. Well, thank you for the ice cream. <laughs> Absolutely. And thank you to everyone listening. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. I usually say, stay thirsty, but stay hungry. We'll catch you again next time. Hey, thanks for listening. And a big thanks to Anna and the entire team over at Instrumental for making this interview possible. Anna is someone who's been on my manufacturing radar for quite a while now. I've had a couple people recommend I connect with her. So I'm glad I finally was able to get her here on Manufacturing Happy Hour. She had a lot of great things to share in this episode. So if you want to access any of those, make sure to go to the show notes over at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 60. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. It can be short and sweet, just like the ice cream we were talking about. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes to leave a rating and review on your iPhone or on your desktop. Finally, I do want to thank our sponsor for today, Concept System. It's been a while since we gave these folks a shout-out. You can learn more about Concept Systems. They are a premier systems integrator. They cover a wide variety of applications. We featured Ryan Wasmond from their team back in Episode 7 when we were talking digital transformation. Make sure to go back and check that out to get to know more about today's sponsor, Concept System. With that, that's it for this week. Stay tuned. we got another interview coming up next week, and we look forward to seeing you back here then. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.